It was about a year ago that a Christian nonprofit group gained some notoriety for running an advertising campaign that was leading up to some commercials that aired during the Super Bowl. So obviously quite a lot of money was spent on this. Maybe you saw some of these commercials, maybe you saw some of the buildup to it. It started with billboards that appeared in various cities in public places. You could see them at games on the scoreboards and things like that. Can I the next slide, please? So you could see them at games on scoreboards. You could see them in other public prominent places, digital billboards often, where Slogans like these would scroll by and catch people's attention. There were even a few that were posted in front of places like casinos. So it was a little bit unusual there as well. And all of them had the same central idea behind them. It really revolved around that phrase that I had on that first slide at the, at the baseball game. He gets us. And then when they got to the commercials that were showed at the Super Bowl, there would be people that were dealing with regular, everyday struggles in life, and then they would show a parallel situation from Jesus' life and ministry and conclude with that phrase, he gets us. Maybe some of you have seen these commercials, maybe you saw some of the billboards, but even if this isn't something that you were familiar with, that phrase, he gets us, a savior who understands the things that are in the lives of the people that he comes to save, well, that's something that is critical for understanding the message that the prophet Isaiah has for us today in our first scripture reading. When you look at that scripture reading, Isaiah talks about this figure in the future that he calls the servant of the Lord. And this isn't the only place in Isaiah's writing where he mentions this figure, the servant of the Lord. In fact, if you were to look at those other places where that is mentioned, you'd find that this servant of the Lord, this is one of the ways that Isaiah refers to the Messiah to come in the future. And when we look at what Isaiah says in this particular section, one of the points that does come out is that this Messiah that was promised would be a Messiah, a Savior who would understand the day-to-day -day challenges and the day-to-day -day struggles of the people that he had came to save, and that would enable him to be exactly the Savior that we need him to be. So how does all this fit together? Well, maybe we can start with this idea. One of the biblical ideas that is commonly used to describe God's people of every generation is the word chosen. If you look at God's people of the Old Testament, you can find all kinds of examples of times when the prophets refer to them as God's chosen people. And that does fit because God chose the Israelites to be the ones who would be the human ancestors of Jesus. And it wasn't a choice that was made because they were somehow different or better than anyone else. It was simply a choice that God made in his wisdom and his mercy and his planning to bring his Savior into the world. He chose the Israelites to be the nation that he would do that through. And then as time passes and that Savior comes, God uses that same term, the idea of being chosen, to refer to all of his children, all the way down to you and me today talking about how God chose us before the creation of the world to be his own, and then he orchestrated things over the course of time to make sure that we would find out about the Savior and to make sure that we would come to faith. He acted on that choice in history. It's a really cool thing when you think about everything that went into saving us. But if you're anything like me, there have probably also been days in your life when having that title as a chosen child of God maybe doesn't seem like it affects day-to-day -day life all that much. 
And maybe that's something that, that comes into your thinking when you get to a point in life where you've just accomplished and finished some huge project, something that you've really poured a lot of time and effort into. Maybe it's something for work, maybe it's something for school, maybe it's something for a family member or a friend. And it went just as you wanted it to go. You used your God-given gifts as best as you could and it turned out just the way you were hoping it would. But the only problem was nobody else really seemed to notice or care all that much. And so you felt like it was kind of maybe a waste of time, feeling like a chosen child of God in that moment? Well, probably not. You feel kind of ordinary. Or maybe it's the kind of thinking that happens when you start playing that comparison game and you look at the gifts and talents that God has given to other people and all of the things that they've accomplished throughout their lives and then you compare that to yourself and it doesn't seem like it matches up very well and you feel kind of ordinary. So much for being a chosen, special child of God. Or maybe it happens more on the spiritual side of things. Perhaps there's some kind of temptation that you personally struggle with, a sin that you've, you've told yourself time and again, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then when the temptation arises, it proves stronger than your willpower and you're caught up in the same thing yet again. And you think to yourself, well, chosen child of God, it doesn't really seem to fix things in my life in the way that I would like to see. You know, when we face situations like these, there are one of two common reactions that people tend to have. Both of them are kind of timeless and both of them are rather dangerous. The first one goes something like this. People might react and say, well, maybe this whole chosen child of God thing just really isn't that big of a deal because it doesn't seem to change my life in that noticeable of a way. God tells me I'm one of his children. He tells me my sins are forgiven. And so maybe the way that I live my life on a day-to-day -day basis just doesn't have that much of an effect anyway. You can find examples of this in the Bible. You don't have to look very hard in Bible history to find God's people disregarding God's will. You don't have to look very hard to find the Old Testament people not following the way of life God had laid out for them to find them ignoring the words of prophets like Isaiah and then saying it's all going to be fine because we're the children of Israel, the chosen people of God. It's, it's all good anyway. Does that kind of thinking still persist today? I would guess that, that it probably does. Maybe you found a way to avoid paying as much on your taxes as you should and you know that nobody is going to catch you and you pay enough anyway. So is this really that big of a deal? Or maybe you've gotten into the habit of drinking a little bit more than you should, but you never get in a car and drive. And so nobody actually gets hurt. So does that really matter? Or maybe it's something that happens in a relationship between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, things that should not happen until marriage, but you love each other. So is it really that significant? Whatever the example might be, the temptation is still there today for us to say, oh, I'm a chosen child of God. I'm not going to achieve perfection anyway, no matter how hard I try. Jesus forgives me, so maybe it doesn't really matter. It's all good. And I would ask today, well, is it really all good? I think you know as well as I do what the Bible says about that kind of thinking, calling it hypocrisy. The status as a chosen child of God is something that we have, but it's also something that could be lost, that could be thrown away. The other reaction that people might have to the status as a chosen child of God not seeming to make that much of a difference in life 
is very different, but it's just as dangerous. It might go something like this. A person looks at their life and they're very cognizant of their sinfulness. And they say, the chosen child of God, well, that couldn't possibly apply to me, not if God actually remembered what I did. That's something that you can see in Bible times as well. If you imagine a few centuries after Isaiah, when some of the warnings of the prophets had come to pass and the Babylonian armies had come in and carried God's people away into captivity, and you can imagine them sitting there miles away from their home in the promised land, unable to get back to where they were supposed to live, looking through those scrolls of the prophets and realizing how many times they had been warned about this very thing and how they had ignored those warnings time and again and wondering to themselves, it was easy to see that we were God's chosen people living in the promised land, but what about now? Maybe we threw that away. Maybe that whole thing with the Messiah isn't even going to happen. Are there times when that same kind of thinking happens today? You become very aware of some sinfulness that has taken place in your life and you feel guilt and shame. It might be something just known to you and God or it might be something very public that all kinds of people know about and that has caused all kinds of damage. And you look at that and you see that sin and you hear God's promise of forgiveness but you say to yourself, that's not really for me. What I did was too serious. What I did was too bad. Chosen child of God, not me. No way. That can't possibly be true. When we find ourselves in situations like those as Christians, one of the things that Isaiah wants to show us in this prophecy is that the Messiah who comes, Jesus Christ himself, he understands that because he experienced things similar to that in his life. And Isaiah begins by reminding us that Jesus also was one who was anointed with that term, the chosen one. He put it like this, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Jesus was chosen to be the servant of the Lord, this Messiah, and yet you don't have to put yourself in his shoes and think about his ministry for all that long to realize that there must have been occasions when this was a pretty frustrating thing. As Jesus goes about his work, you can imagine him praying to his Father in heaven and saying, Father, these people that we chose to save, they don't really seem to be interested in being saved. The Savior that they've been waiting for is here, and many of them don't even acknowledge that he's the Savior. Some of them have no interest in him, and others are outright rejecting him. Something must have gone wrong here. You can imagine the temptation to frustration, the temptation to perhaps even giving up on God's plans entirely, being one that the devil would throw before Jesus on a regular basis. And Isaiah prophesied that that would be the case. He described what that frustration would be like, envisioning the Messiah saying something like this, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. It is fair to say that Jesus gets us, that he understands the frustrations and the challenges of living in a sinful world because that's one of the things that he did in being our Savior. He came down and faced the exact same things that we face. He gets us. He gets that frustration. But the beautiful thing is Jesus reaction to that frustration is nothing like either of those examples of sinfulness that prove to be so appealing to people. 
Instead, Isaiah describes his attitude using these words. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. That was the appearance of things, humanly speaking. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. As true man, Jesus had set aside his power and ability as true God for a time to be our Savior. And so that meant that he landed in the very same place that you and I are in, entirely dependent on God's plans and God's promises. And in those times, Jesus demonstrates this perfect trust in God's plans and God's promises about what was to come. And that continued even as those plans that God had for the Messiah continued to cause more hardship and more difficulty and more struggle as his plan, his role in God's salvation plan continued to be carried out. In today's gospel, you heard John the Baptist describe Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that phrase, the Lamb of God, that was not just some title that had some references to something from the dusty, dusty annals of Old Testament history and prophecy. The Lamb of God is exactly what God had chosen the Messiah to be. Because those lambs from the Old Testament that were brought for sacrifice, they were killed symbolically for the sins of the people. And that's exactly what was supposed to happen to Jesus too, except for, in his case, it wasn't symbolic anymore. That's what was happening at the cross. And so when you think about that, surprising though it might sound, it is accurate to say that Jesus knows what it feels like to carry a burden of guilt or to feel shame or to have terror over God's wrath and punishment. Because those are the things that Jesus was experiencing at the cross. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took the weight of our sins on his shoulders and that's what it meant to be the Lamb of God. That was the sacrifice that he paid. And so we see, we see again with that that Jesus gets us. He understands what our sin is because he took it on himself and he carried it and he suffered for it and he paid the price for it and now it's gone. Isaiah tells us that Jesus gets us. He understands our situation. He understands what sin is. He understands the price that needed to be paid and he paid it himself. It makes him exactly the savior that we need. And that brings us to the major point that Isaiah has been building towards all along. Showing us that the implications of what the savior has done are far bigger than what anybody in his time might have imagined. Far bigger than what people today might even imagine. Isaiah says this, And now the Lord says, It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, God's plan for this Messiah went far beyond those people of the Old Testament. It went far beyond saving those who were in captivity and bringing them back to their homeland. Although God would keep those promises as well. But that was too small of a thing. God wanted to save his people not just from the hands of their enemies, not just even for they themselves, but for the purpose of sharing this salvation with the entire world, with the Gentiles, with all of the other nations, 
Jesus wanted to offer that salvation to everybody who lived, everybody who has lived, and not just salvation from some difficulties here in this life, but salvation from this life, from this world entirely, to live with God forever in a place where all of those frustrations are gone. That's what God had in mind. Something that was a bit bigger than anything that people back then had imagined, and maybe something that is a bit bigger than you and I even think about when we think about what the Savior does for us and what this means in our lives. Because what happens with those feelings of guilt and shame that we have over our own sins? What happens when we recognize those times when we have sinned, perhaps even on purpose and perhaps not really caring that much in the moment? Well, the work of the Savior means that all of that is forgiven. It's paid for. Jesus took it on himself and he suffered for it. But it also means so much more than that. Because God speaks these same words to us today. He says it is too small of a thing for the Messiah to be a servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. It's too small of a thing for this just to be about us. He says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. A plan that God intends to continue today, a plan that involves you and me in a very significant way. I don't know if that advertising campaign he gets us is going to continue again this year or not. But either way, that phrase perhaps serves as a way to show what a cool thing it is that God plans to work through his people in expanding the work of the Savior beyond just forgiving our sins, but spreading it to the whole world. Because when we say that Jesus gets us, that he understands us, he understands exactly who he's working with. And so when he tells us that we are going to be the ones carrying this good news of Jesus out and sharing it with other people, he knows what our shortcomings are. He knows what our limitations are. He knows all of the ways that we have the potential to mess that up. But it's the Almighty God who is in control of that. He's the one who is carrying out this plan. And that's a critical thing to remember because there are going to be those days when it seems as though the sinful world is not interested in the Savior, is not interested in the things that we have to hear, is not interested in the perspectives that we have to share. And on those days, we can remember that, that Jesus gets that. He understands that because that's what happened during his ministry as well. Isaiah closes with a couple of more verses pointing that out. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, in other words, to this Messiah who feels rejected on every front, who feels like nobody's interested in what he's, having, what he's doing. The Lord says, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In other words, the plans that God has in place are going to be completed. And the resistance of sinful people is not going to stop that. That's what happened with Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And all of the opposition from the best and brightest of his day and age did nothing to stop that. God's plan was fulfilled. And the same thing is going to happen today as God carries out his plans through us. They are going to be fulfilled because the Almighty God is behind them. God is going to bring people into your life and give you the opportunity to encourage them with good news about Jesus. And he's going to work through that message because that's what he does. This is the almighty God who is behind that. And as he presents those opportunities to us, we don't have to be intimidated or afraid of it because we know that this is a God who knows us, a God who understands us, 
who recognizes what our shortcomings and our strengths and our weaknesses are, and who has plans to make use of us in his kingdom accordingly. And so as we leave today, may God open our eyes to those opportunities as he places them in our life. And may he give us the boldness and the courage to seize them, not worried about what the outcome might appear to be from human perspectives, but confident as our Savior was in the plans of God that will be completed and will be fulfilled as they always are. And may God further give us a front row seat to seeing the ways that his plans are worked out in our lives and in our relationships as we seek to serve him in the little corner of the world that God has placed us in. Amen.